Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. National anthems are funny things. They can seem like unchanging expressions of national pride. But musicians can actually infuse them with new meaning. Next month marks the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, where Jimi Hendrix performed a version of the national anthem that wowed some and upset others. While in Ann Arbor a few weeks ago during our Worldview road trip, I had the chance to talk with someone who knows practically everything about our national anthem. Mark Clegg is an associate professor of musicology and associate dean of undergraduate academic affairs at the University of Michigan. His star-spangled songbook traces the history of our national anthem, and we dove right into the anthem and Jimi Hendrix. You got really into the Jimi Hendrix version of the national anthem and its meaning. And you start your course there uh, for people to hook them in. What is it about that that locked you in? I mean, I think it's a musical response initially. I mean, it's just an amazing performance. And really, for me, the most powerful rendition of the Star Spangled Banner in American history, bar none. I mean, there's some that might be close, but for me, this is the most compelling musical statement. And part of the reason is it's complicated. I mean, it sort of mixes patriotism with protest at the same time in a way that I think is sort of emblematic of the tensions in American history. I mean, we're always sort of being retrospective and introspective and ambitious and pushing forward in this democratic experiment at all times. So what I do in my class is I want to get students thinking about what is American music and what can it sort of teach us about what it means to be American. It's not just culture as sort of decoration or entertainment, but really culture is a kind of almost a scientific way like a biologist would culture, you know, some kind of <laughs> experiment, right? So it's culture that's growing the community from the ground up. And that's what I think American song is one of those sort of bellwethers or signals about what's really going on in our hearts. The Jimi Hendrix version, I think a lot of people in my generation would know it. Probably a lot of your students haven't heard it. But for our generation, we always think of him as this awesome guitarist who just sat down and rocked this thing out at Woodstock because of the moment, man. One second, I'm in my mother's uterus. The next, I'm on stage, and John Fogarty is snipping my umbilical cord with a guitar pick while strumming the opening bit from Bad Moon Rising. Woodstock was a wild time. Is that really what happened? I think the moment had a lot to do with it. I mean, I do think that the optimism and the hope that's in his performance is a response directly to that moment in Woodstock. I mean, you know, he's supposed to go on Sunday night and the whole show is mired in all sorts of problems as far as practical time, getting the artists there. It's running half day behind. He ends up closing the festival the day after it's supposed to end, you know, early morning on Monday. And he actually finishes his set. He says, I'm done. Like, here's my last tune. And he plays it. And then he looks over the crowd and he starts to play the Star Spangled Banner. Thank you. 
So it's almost a kind of response to what has happened in this moment. And I think he sees the possibility for young people in America to really sort of create a future, to build a new nation. I mean, you're looking at the late 1960s, students from a democratic society, you know, all the sort of protest and activism that age. It looked like young people were going to finally sort of assert and make the future they wanted. And I think that the patriotism, the sort of Firex display that's part of his performance is that hope. And it's inspired by that moment at Woodstock. And did he play the national anthem a lot? This was a big surprise to me because, you know, in my class, I show the clip from sort of the climax of the Woodstock documentary film, right? And I, and it's an amazing piece of filmmaking too. I mean, you see Hendrix's face and you see him sort of mouthing the screams and the cries as he's depicting the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air. And he's connecting that with Vietnam and with race riots at home and sort of all of this angst of the 1960s, the horror of inequality. And yet, this is not a thing he just played once. It wasn't a spontaneous improvisation. It was a well-thought-out set of musical possibilities that had been put in a flexible arrangement. And he started playing the anthem. Curiously enough, it developed out of an improvisation as basically a, an outro to Red House or Voodoo Child, something like that. And it really is taps initially. <laughs> And so Hendrix, of course, was a member of the U.S. Airborne. You know, he had friends who were in Vietnam. You know, so for him, the war, the conservative side of the politics were also very visceral, as well as the liberal progressive side. So he combines both of those things. So he starts out playing taps and then morphs into the Star Spangled Banner. And then by the time we get to Woodstock, a year later, the relationship has reversed, right? We have the Star Spangled Banner with taps sort of built into the middle. I'm talking with Mark Clegg from the University of Michigan. He is an expert on our national anthem. We're talking a bit about Jimi Hendrix's version of the national anthem on the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. And he had played it a lot by the time he got to Woodstock. So yeah, Woodstock is sort of the midpoint of a two-year obsession that Hendrix has with the anthem. It starts a year before in Columbia, Maryland, which is actually only about 15 miles from Fort McHenry. And then it ends only with his death in September of 1970. And he's playing the anthem multiple times a month, really that whole time. Although after Woodstock, he takes a little bit of time off. I think it really has to do with his own struggle with what it means for him to be an American. I mean, Hendrix is an interesting artist because, of course, he grows up in sort of the rhythm and blues circuit. You know, he's playing with, you know, Chuck Berry and other artists, you know, who are sort of typically playing what we would call black music, but he's a progressive rocker, right? He's really serving as a kind of bridge almost to white fan base, really, which is a much different kind of thing. And he, of course, does not succeed terribly well initially when we're talking like 66, 67 as a American artist by going to England, right, where he connects with the other two members of his trio, the experience, that he sort of finds his footing as an artist and he creates this new sound that then comes to Monterey Pop in late 67 and just blows up, right? So by going overseas, looking back across at the country, that he gains his own perspective as an artist. And what's interesting is when he comes to Monterey Pop, and he's reintroducing himself to the country. He plays at the very end of his set, Voodoo Child. It's right below before he burns up his guitar famously, right? And he introduces it as a new American anthem.
So even at that very moment, he's searching for a musical expression about what it means for him to be back in the country, to be an American again. And I think his obsession with the Star Spangled Banner starts about a year later. What's interesting is he plays it 70 times that I've been able to track. And it's probably more that weren't recorded or weren't you know, mentioned in newspaper articles. But it's a set of possibilities. So he has the melody. He has the sort of pictorialisms on rockets, red glare, and bombs bursting in air where he goes crazy with these, you know, firefight, bomb screaming illustrations of the text. But he also does like uses the whammy bar to create a wave sort of effect, you know, with the, the flag is still there. And he does ornamentation. He at times will detune the guitar sort of ironically. You know, of course, Hendrix was obsessed with tuning. He's always tuning in the middle because, of course, the overturns don't really work unless it's perfectly in tune. So when Hendrix plays out of tune, it means something. It's not just like when I'm a, as a musician, I play out of tune. It's a, it's a mistake. <laughs> when Hendrix plays out of tune, it was expressive. You know, So I think of it as a kind of sonic snapshot, a picture that he's taking of the world around him as he sees it at that moment. And he's showing in the anthem arrangement what he's thinking about his own relationship to the country, to the sort of political turmoil of the time with civil rights and anti-war movement, um, with the fear of communism, all of the things that wrap up in the 1960s. And so, for instance, if he were trying at Woodstock to insult the flag or burn the flag, which is what some people claim, he had way better ways to do it. He could have played it out of tune. He could have like had the improvisation go into the ditch. He could have done things musically that would have sort of sonically destroyed or or dissolved the anthem. He doesn't. He comes back, he plays the tune the land of the free and the home of the brave sort of triumphantly in tune, you know, whereas at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco, you know, about eight months before, which was an important anniversary concert for the experience and they were beautifully recorded, he did these much more dystopian things where they were like seven minutes long, where the improvisation sort of almost grows out of a kind of free jazz context with this sort of dark you know, sort of turgid representation of the country. He would throw in like commercial theme songs, the Mickey Mouse Club or the Cavalcade <laughs> of Sports, you know. And in sports, of course, boxing was really big on the Cavalcade and he watched that as a kid. And so it was really a complex essay about what it meant to be American. It was long, but we're having very bad difficulties with this amplifier scene. And really, really anyway, we want to do this purple haze for you if you let us. Woodstock is one of the sort of great moments of optimism in his sort of fluctuating variable arrangement. How many other artists really did something like that with the anthem? Because there are lots of renditions of the anthem, but um, this constant tinkering, um, it seems a little unique. 
I do think that um, Hendrix is sort of an extreme. I mean, there are other punk bands, like there's a band called Stelch that has done a kind of dystopian version. There literally are probably a thousand or more recordings of the Star Spangled Banner and probably like 30 of them try to do something interesting politically beyond sort of the what I would say largely is kind of pop stylings of sincerity. You know, a lot of pop musicians get criticized for messing with the anthem, but as long as it's consistent with their style, I I think it can be a sincere expression of their own relationship to the country. Can you see But for Hendrix, that sincerity, I think, takes on much more complexity. And for me, the beauty of the anthem and its history is the complexity. Um, and it's complex like America is complex, you know, and, and it's understanding the tensions and the subtlety that the song literally gives voice to that, that makes it interesting. But I would say the other famous controversial um, version other than Roseanne Barr, which everyone likes to hate, is Jose Feliciano, which happened near here in Detroit for the 1968 World Series. And he played what he felt was a very sort of sincere expression of his love of his country that had given him this uh, you know, opportunity to become a, a musical star. And people heard that and heard this sort of bluesy, soulful rendition that was really slow and uh, like literally called into the networks and said, why do you have this immigrant playing the Star Spangled Banner when, of course, he was American? talk about it, there is no traditional version of the Star Spangled Banner in my mind. The way we sing it tells us about who we are and what the performance context of that moment is. And probably the most sort of traditional or stereotypical moment would be a kind of military ceremony. And that's what we tend to think of as the normal Star Spangled Banner. But it's different than Francis Scott Key taught it or sang it in Teaching this class and showing Hendrix and saying to my students, what do you think this means? Is this patriotic or is this protest? And of course, I try to lead them to that moment of, hey, it's tricky. 
um, got me to then look into the whole history of the anthem. Like, where did this song come from? And who is this Francis Scott Key guy? Why did he write this song? Who wrote the melody? So the, you know, the melody is an, is an English tune from a musician's club in the 1770s that became part of what we call the broadside ballad tradition. So it was very typical in the 19th century and, and before for the newspaper to carry sets of lyrics on sort of current events that would be sung to well-known tunes. So like the Battle Hymn of the Republic is one of those things that's a contrafact or America, My Country to the Sea is another one that's God Save the Queen, right? All of these tunes are commentaries on other tunes and there's a kind of lyrical dialogue that's going on. For Francis Scott Key, the anthem was a political statement. It was his dream that this country that had a weak navy that was being beaten up by the British and had our own capital burned to the ground would sort of step up and take pride and fight off this Invader. You're listening to a conversation I had with Mark Clegg, Associate Professor of Musicology at the University of Michigan, during our Worldview Road Trip earlier this month. After the break, we'll hear more about the myriad of ways the musicians have played the Star-Spangled Banner. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we're hearing an interview from when our Worldview Great Lakes road trip stopped in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mark Clegg and I talked about the national anthem and what it's meant to musicians and audiences over the years. You were telling me earlier that this last century has been one where we mess with the music and before we messed with the lyrics as you're, you're kind of getting into here, mm-hmm. who, who really wrote the lyrics to the national anthem if it wasn't Francis Scott Key? So Francis Scott Key wrote the lyrics to um, what he called the defense of Fort McHenry, what we call the, the Star Spangled Banner. Um, and there's no question to me that he wrote lyrics, not poetry. So he wrote words that were designed to fit a very specific melody that he himself knew. And he actually had written a set of words to the same tune, because it's called the Anacreontic Song, or To Anacreon in Heaven, um, nine years earlier in celebration of a naval set of heroes, uh, Stephen Decatur. interesting is this melody comes from England in the 1770s. If you lined up all the lyrics I've found, and at this point I've found over 200 lyrics that are sung to the tune we know as the Star Spangled Banner. If you lined them up in chronological order, Francis Scott Key would be about number 70. So he's joining a conversation about the country. Prior to that, there are songs for John Adams, songs for Thomas Jefferson, songs for the 4th of July, which was celebrated before uh, the War of 1812. And then Key says, okay, I've witnessed this heroic moment at Fort McHenry in Baltimore. I need a tune to celebrate the heroism of the defenders of Fort McHenry, the defenders of Baltimore. And so he picks what he thinks of as an American patriotic tune that had been used for Fourth of July songs. And then and he So the tune it. was really being already kind of becoming the, the national anthem when he um, picked it up. 
It was definitely associated with American patriotism. I mean, the whole way it becomes a national anthem is tricky. Like, what is the moment where it becomes? You know, officially, the Star-Spangled Banner becomes the national anthem in 1931, right? There's an act of Congress. Herbert Hoover, president, signs the bill on March 3rd, 1931, makes it the national anthem. In truth, it had been the national anthem in practice, certainly by World War I and probably sometime around the Civil War. Because the Civil War, the crux of the Civil War is union, right? Is keeping the country together. And the thing that represents that is the flag. And Lincoln famously says, yeah, I know 13 states have seceded, but we're leaving those stars on that flag. They can't go. So they keep the flag the same. And so Key's lyric, because it has that tagline of the Star Spangled Banner, right, in every verse, becomes a kind of sonic equivalent of the visual flag. And the two, their histories are married. So because of the way the flag represents the country and the military sacrifice, the Civil War really kind of sanctifies the song because the flag becomes, I mean, literally bathed in the blood of its own citizens to preserve it. And so that sacrifice and the the horror of the Civil War, which, you know, was one of the most deadly war in, I think, in American history even today, you know, becomes the thing that starts to really change the status of that song. If you had asked someone in the 1830s what the, the national anthem was, they probably would have said, Hail Columbia, oh. which is a tune we basically don't know today. <laughs> Were there any versions, any lyrics to the tune of the 200 versions you looked at that you thought, wow. That's really good. I might go for that one. There are tons of them. I mean, there are additional peace lyrics after the Civil War. There's women's suffrage tunes. There's um, temperance songs. What I think is the most important one is one that was actually sort of written not far from Chicago in Battle Creek, Michigan, by a minister named E.A. Atley, and it's called Oh Say Do You Hear? And it was actually picked up by um, William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator. It's an anti-slavery song. Huh. And what you're hearing in Osei Do You Hear is actually the shrieks, the cries of the slaves calling out for justice. And it's these incredibly vivid um, lyrics just about the suffering of slavery and the, the cruelty of slavery and the fact that if we're going to have a nation, you know, we're, we're, we call the land of the free. And at least lyrics actually use that line. So they echo certain of Key's lyrics. If we're really the land of the free, then we can't have four million people enslaved. If I could get every person in America to know Key's version and then also to know this anti-slavery lyric, it for me, it really brings out some important parts of the song, which is that it is this conversation about what it means to be American. And I think one of the things that we – the way we sing the Star Spangled Banner today that's not true to the way – Francis Scott Key thought of it is that the punctuation mark at the end of the verse that we sing before every, you know, Chicago Bears game or University yeah. of Michigan football game is a question mark. 
right? He's asking, is the flag still there? And there's a sense of how do we then answer that question? We sing it now like it's an exclamation mark, like we're great and this is awesome <laughs> and we are sort of the land destined to be a world superpower. We're not. In Francis Scott Key's mind, we were you know, a country that was barely getting by that had you know, a second war of independence. The British were literally on our land and he was hoping that we could make a great country. For me, someone like Colin Kaepernick or Jimi Hendrix – you know, they're tapping into that question mark of what does it mean to be a land of the free and a home of the brave? What does it mean to be free and brave today? I think if everybody can grab that question mark like Attlee did when he was calling out slavery in 1843, we'll, I think, use the song for what it was really intended to be, which is something to imagine the future, not to celebrate who we are already. For the land, land of the free. San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick refusing to stand during the national anthem again. This time, he took a knee right behind hundreds of service members being honored on Military Appreciation Night. The crowd booing every time he took a snap. I'll continue to sit. I'm going to continue to stand with the people that are being oppressed. When there's significant change and I feel like that flag represents what it's supposed to represent, I'll stand. So you drop Colin Kaepernick, who doesn't do a rendition of the anthem. He merely is protesting at the anthem. He's kind of uh, doing the same thing that the people who were messing with the lyrics were doing. He's questioning who we are. I think so. I, you know, Kaepernick is not protesting the anthem per se. He's using the anthem and the moment of attention that it calls in our sort of public civic rituals to focus on the fact that, you know, by kneeling, by doing something different, that he's not just casually accepting what America is now, but he's questioning it. He's tapping into that question mark. And I think it is very much, in, for me, in the spirit of Hendrix and in the spirit of Francis Scott Key. So I don't see protest as somehow... Um, antagonistic to patriotism. For me, really, you can't have love of country if you're not trying to make it better. Was there a moment where the lyrics and the music kind of locked in and we stopped changing and uh, using it to identify other causes that we question in, in American life? So it's never entirely stopped. I mean, if you go to lyrical message boards um, on the internet today, you can find <laughs> parody <sure>. versions. <laughs> Where I think it really changes is actually um, World War I. So World War I is the moment where national anthems sort of rise in importance. We have the airplane. We have you know, faster transportation. We have a war that's involving multiple countries, and we have to be able to identify who's on whose team. And so – you know, before that, in the early 1800s, you really didn't meet people from other countries that much. Everyone didn't have to carry their flag around. Whereas now we have like the World Cup and the Olympics and like you got to see each team and they're all working together and they carry their flags around and they sing their songs to identify themselves. So it's really the sort of mass transportation and technology and communication, radio um, that makes anthems necessary. And World War I is the moment where um, Woodrow Wilson, president, makes the Star Spangled Banner the official anthem of the US military. And at that moment, then this kind of parody or alternate versions of lyrics, I think, become kind of insulting. You're messing with the words. You're sort of messing with the country. So at that time, it really becomes about how you sing the song 
the arrangement you use? Is it for an operatic voice? Is it formal? Is it in sort of a kind of, if you will, in the vernacular of a community? So someone like Jose Feliciano puts it in his vernacular of sort of pop music, or someone like Hendrix puts it in his vernacular of psychedelic rock, right? So we, we sing it in ways that then reflect who we are, which I think is symbolic and sincere, but it also, you know, is expanding the notion of who's covered under that term American. I mean, the amazing thing about the United States is it's so giant, right? I mean, compared to Europe, you have these little countries, you know, we have to unite people from sea to shining sea, people who will never meet each other, people in Hawaii and in, and in Maine, you know, or even Virgin Islands. They're literally right. time zones apart. And to make them feel part of something that, where they have shared concerns, where they making sacrifice will benefit each other, right? And so patriotism is really important and these symbols are important for us. Because we're so giant, we need something that makes us feel as one. Do you have a favorite underrated version of the anthem? We've talked about the Jimi Hendrix, the Jose Feliciano, the kind of well-known ones. People know Whitney Houston's, but uh, right. is there like a um, version that you think, wow, this was great? And That's and, a great question. You know, one of the most fun I've had, I would say, is actually doing a history. I'm writing a, a book now on the story of the Star Spangled Banner. It's a biography of sorts of the whole thing from the 1770s to the present. And one of the funnest things has been tracing all of the performances at the Super Bowl, which are always <laughs> a big event. And what's amazing is that they are so different from each other. So I think a couple that come to mind are, gosh, like Cher's version is pretty amazing. You know, everything that you can imagine has been done with the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl, including singing it for four four <laughs> like Whitney Houston does. <laughs> And that's unusual why? So the song is in three. Yeah. Right? So if you think of a triple time song, one, two, three, it's like a waltz. Yeah. And you have two feet. So any kind of music that doesn't have twos, it has a very different feel. And what's happened with the Star Spangled Banner is that it's actually almost shifted to 4-4, four, four, right? Which is, oh, say, can you see? So one, two, three, four, one. And I think the reason for that is the way the song has changed in its social import. So in 1814, when Francis Scott Key writes it, he's writing a party song. We beat the British. Like, woo! You know, so it has this kind of upbeat, oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? It's yeah. much faster in 1814. After World War I, after the Civil War, after it's become sanctified in the blood of military sacrifice, the song has become a hymn. So when we go to perform it, it's like more like going to church. Church hymns are not in three. Yeah. Church hymns are in four. So slowing it down, adding that beat gives it this feeling of being sacred and I think really reflects the way the ritual and the meaning of the song has changed over time. 
Mark Clegg teaches U.S. music at the University of Michigan. He teaches occasionally, of course, on U.S. patriotic music. He is expert in the Star-Spangled Banner, and he's Associate Dean of Undergraduate Academic Affairs here at the University of Michigan. Great to meet you, and I look forward to your book on the National Anthem. Thanks so much. What was the controversy about the National Anthem and the way you... I don't Play know. That. All I did was play it. I'm American, so I played it. I used to sing it in school. They made me sing it in school, so mm-hmm. it's a flashback. You know, I don't know about it. This man was in the 101st Airborne, so when you write your nasty letters in, talk, nasty letters. Wow, right. you really well, people, when you mention the national anthem and uh, talk about playing it in any unorthodox way, you immediately get a guaranteed percentage of hate mail from people well, listen, who say, "How that's dare not unorthodox. anyone?" That's not unorthodox. It isn't unorthodox. No, no. I thought it was beautiful. But then there you go. That was Mark Clegg, Associate Professor of Musicology at the University of Michigan. Next up, we'll hear an interview from the archives about how black audiences relate to Japanese manga. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. As part of last year's week-long series on black representation in comics, former Worldview production assistant Galilee Abdullah took a look at anime and manga, the iconic Japanese styles of animated film, television, and comic books have particularly taken off with black audiences. Galilee talked to William Bridges IV, assistant professor of Japanese at the University of Rochester, about black characters and black audiences in the world of manga. We're excited to share that she recently won an award for this interview, the Association of LGBTQ Journalists Excellence in Queer People of Color Coverage Award. Here's Galilee Abdullah and Professor William Bridges IV. So, Will... We're talking about black representation in comics, and when we're talking about comics and graphic novels, you can't go without mentioning manga and the world of Japanese animation and anime and all of that. Tell us a little bit about your work and expand from there on what black representation in Japanese manga and anime look like. So my fascination with all things Japanese goes back really to my elementary school days. In second or third grade, I saw a History Channel special on the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And those images of catastrophic destruction kind of stuck with me. And I realized, kind of looking back on it, that's a kind of morbid thing for a second or a third grader uh, to be interested in. But I think it speaks to uh, kind of the interest I had in that possibility of kind of survival after these moments of catastrophic destruction. I also think there was a certain kind of resonance between what I saw on the screen 
and the kind of the lived experience of what I had gone through it from that until that point in time. That is to say, I am African-American and I grew up in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, one of limited socioeconomic means. And there's a certain way that that kind of that survival after catastrophic destruction in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the kind of rebuilding of life, there's a way in which that kind of resonated. So I think you can already start to see how I kind of get to the the research interest, kind of thinking about triangulations of understandings of oneself and of race in the world and how animation and the screen gives us a place where we can quite literally reflect and kind of think about and imagine our place in the world and ourselves as kind of racial beings. There is a historian by the name of John Dower who writes about World War II and the Pacific War as a kind of race war. Um, by which he means racial ideology and kind of racial ways of imagining the enemy played a significant part in how kind of the shape that the conflict took and ultimately the conclusion that we know that the conflict came to. If that is the case, to study post-war Japanese cultural studies, which is what I do, is fundamentally to think about the world in the wake of a race war, right? what it means to survive a race war and to try to rebuild oneself and one's community. So what my work does then is thinks about how African-American history, culture, philosophy, art, uh, intellectual pertinent events, what have you, how that serves as a certain kind of food for the Japanese imagination as they rethink through themselves and what it means to be Japanese in the wake of this race war. And so, yes, there's been some controversial history with certain images that I guess haven't sat well with people like... Mm-hmm. Even Jinx and Pokemon or Mr. Popo and Pokemon, coming from your place as an expert, what can you tell us about black representation in this landscape in Japan? One thing that's helped me think through this landscape is thinking about three lineages of Japanese animation history as it pertains to representations of race. So the first thing to keep in mind then is that Japanese animation was from its very onset a transnational endeavor. There's a way in which anime kind of crosses national boundaries and kind of circulates globally. There are many examples of this. Uh, The first one that's coming to mind right now is, of course, is the etymology of the word anime. You have this word, which is originally English, animation, with a Latin root, uh, which is then brought into Japan and abbreviated as anime, and now is being circulated in the English-speaking world as anime. So you have this word that's borrowed from English and sent to Japan and then sent back to the English-speaking world. Uh, And that etymology then, so every time you say the word, you're kind of reminded that anime is about crossing national borders. And that's, I think, that's fairly apparent both in watching animation but also in reading through the research. Uh, There's also a way that anime has always been fundamentally interested in the possibility of transgressing the boundaries and borders of race. And again, I think this is something that you see in the history of animation uh, happening in a large variety of ways, but I want to think about three of them. The first is the history of kind of feature-length animation really takes off in the World War II period. That is to say, the first Japanese feature-length animation film is Momotaro's Divine Sea Warriors. It was produced by the Japanese Ministry of the Navy. You 
and as representatives of the Japanese Imperial Navy uh, going to various parts of Southeast Asia in, quote-unquote, civilizing their Asian neighbors, uh, who are represented as a variety of animals. And one cannot get away from the fact that Japanese animation begins in this history of dehumanization, right, of taking ethnic others and viewing them as something fundamentally that they are not, as to say, animal rather than human being. There's a second lineage that one begins to see in the post-war period um, that takes up the idea of racial difference primarily in the way of African-American bodies as one that might serve as a point of potential camaraderie or solidarity. Uh, that is to say, with Japan's defeat in this race war of World War II, you have uh, a convenient possibility of, you know, of Japanese artists, animators reimagining themselves as racial comrades or perhaps racial victims of white violence. Of course, there's a certain kind of historical amnesia required for this to work, right? You have to kind of conveniently forget uh, some of the things that are happening in Momotaro, or you have to conveniently forget uh, the Japanese imperial project. The first example that is coming to mind here is Astro Boy. In its first episode, this aired on January 1st, 1963, uh, the birth of Astro Boy, which kind of gets into the backstory of the main character, um, this robot that's built by a doctor to replace his, his lost son. My son, do you think I'll never see you again? If only I could think of a way to bring Astro back to life. I know it's impossible, but if I were to construct a robot, that's it, robot. I'll build a robot that looks like Aster. It'll be my masterpiece. He'll live forever. Ah! <laughs> and the episode revolves around, among other things, the idea of robot rights, robots fighting for their freedom. And in this kind of thinking through of robot rights, you get an analogy of civil rights in some of the scenes, the compositions of the scenes in this particular episode, when it was released in America in September of 1963, actually draw on some of the photography of the Civil Rights March on Washington that happened that year. And so, ladies and gentlemen, a hundred thousand robots assembled in the great plaza below have just heard the joyous news that they are free. The Robot Bill of Rights, signed this morning, now prohibits the purchase... It's a trick, trick by the Institute of Science. No, not tricked by the Institute of Science. This is a decision that was reached by all mankind. I'm not giving Astro Boy back. I bought him for a lot of money. If you don't release the boy, you'll be guilty of a crime not against me, but against humanity. <laughs> you see, he belongs to all mankind. Uh, the third thing to keep in mind, there's also a, a kind of economic impetus for representing other ethnicities, but African-Americans in particular. Or, I should say, there's an economic impetus to efface and exclude their representation. Now, that is to say, if one is producing anime and you produce it solely for a Japanese audience, uh, then you are kind of, from the very outset, limiting the potential viewership, which in turn means you're limiting the number of people that who can buy merchandise and things of the sort. So then in order to expand the base of potential viewers, one creates these nationless anime in which it could be kind of a, an any person happening in any world. And this in turn allows more viewers to find kind of points of entry, avenues of entry into the animation 
Now, what nationless anime has meant more often than not is to, to kind of be crude about it, white. There's a, a way that whiteness serves as a um, a placeholder or a, or a synonym for universal. And I think some of the more contemporary anime that you've mentioned, you can feel uh, various amalgamations of these three different uh, lineages at work. I'm Galilee Abdullah, and I'm talking with William Bridges IV from the University of Rochester. We're talking about black representation in Japanese manga and anime. So do you think that all of these representations through everything that you just talked through, is it reflective of how race and ethnicity is viewed in Japan? Of course, anime come in different genres, right? And different genres kind of do different things with race. But in these various genres, I think if you were to kind of think about the relationship between Japanese culture and anime and race, what the different genres give you is the ideal version of how the Japanese would like to imagine both themselves and the way they think about racial others. Uh, You tend to get sports anime, like Slam Dunk, in which you get these idealized versions, right, of what it means to be an African-American body or what it means to be a powerful Black person. And the possibility of Japanese characters playing on the same plane with these kind of hyperbolically represented kind of super African-Americans. Samurai Champloo is another example. Uh, The characters in this anime, which are informed by, among other things, uh, hip-hop culture, the choreography in particular is informed by hip-hop culture. You have these kind of characters moving at supersonic speed that don't, I think, reflect anything like the reality, if you like, of what's happening in Afro-Japanese relations but rather the, the extreme limits of the Japanese imagination. In order to think through blackness, we have to move to super slam dunks, right? Or to the Edo period. I can't think of anything like uh, Sazai-san, which is just your kind of social realism, slice of life, kind of everyday Japanese life. You don't see much blackness coming up in these kinds of animations. But nothing that strikes me as close to the kind of the lived experience of what it's like to be a, a black person in Japan um, or kind of from the limited sample size that I know of how people are thinking and engaging with black people on a kind of day-to-day basis. We've talked to quite a few writers, um, black writers, who are writing for, you know, American comics and graphic novels. And mm-hmm. it seems like there's this understanding that there either have been controversial images of mm-hmm. black people or those narratives and those images are controlled by non-black people or have been. And so, you know, more recently, there are more writers and illustrators in this landscape who are taking control of these narratives and adding more complexity to these characters. You know, like Black Panther was even created by white people, and now the narrative is being controlled by black writers. And I guess when we're consuming manga and anime, I guess it's kind of harder to seek yourself out because you're trying to find yourself in comics that are coming from a place where race is constructed differently. I don't know. I guess like a lot of times we're consuming manga and anime like as this like appreciation of like, you know, this like cultural exchange that does exist. But, you know, we're still trying to like weigh the controversy as well and the amnesia that you had mentioned earlier. Right, right. I think I'm essentially just going to agree with some of the things that you said from the other side of the Pacific. So I'll just kind of walk through some of the main ideas that you put on the table. Now, first, and this goes back to that history, but it is simply 
kind of the facts of the archive, that there are representations of African-Americans in Japanese manga and anime. Let's just say they don't breathe life into anything that looks like any kind of blackness that I've ever seen. It's, it's kind of this kind of dehumanized, belittling version representations of African-Americans, representation of the jungle in which one gets African primitives. And these primitives kind of coded with the kind of visual cues that one would know from uh, the minstrel show and from Jim Crow representations of blackness. And to see that that has traveled to the other side of the Pacific can be a very painful experience. I guess that's just one kind of reality check, I suppose. As to say, there might be a desire to turn to Japan to escape from that history, uh, but that history is very much there. But with that said, I think there's also the possibility of imagining blackness from a fundamentally different vantage point, right? That can happen when either African-American animators are inspired by Japanese anime or when Japanese animators are inspired by African-American animation or culture. Afro Samurai is one example of this. Uh, I think The Boondocks is another example of this. You won't kill me, Air Marshal 50 Cent. You'll only die trying. But I will kill you. You thought you was the only one who mastered the ancient and deadly art of the Nunchaku? There's a way in which this representation of African life, which has these moments of profound beauty throughout the series, is very much informed by Japanese anime. To take the some of the aesthetics of uh, the samurai and Bushido and to say that this is just as applicable to an African-American, right? We could take these some of these beautiful aesthetics and there would be nothing incongruous between this set of aesthetics and the voice of Samuel L. Jackson. Hey! You got a motherfucking RPG? Wait, 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 can we talk about this? There's something powerful in that. And I think that power is born primarily by virtue of the new vantage point that one gets when one kind of takes what one knows as home and thinks through it from a different place. I don't think I'm saying anything particularly new here. Um, James Baldwin wrote about what happens when the black itinerant travels to new places and imagines himself as he would have been if he was born in a different place and what have you. Right? And it can resonate, even if it always inevitably has to kind of wrestle with the kind of historical gravity of racist representations of anti-blackness. That was a great conversation. Thank you, Will. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was William Bridges IV, assistant professor of Japanese at the University of Rochester, talking to former Worldview production assistant Galilee Abdullah about black representation in Japanese comics. The interview recently won the Association of LGBTQ Journalists Excellence in Queer People of Color Coverage Award. Coming up tomorrow, we'll go to the Morton Arboretum. I'm excited to get out and spend some time with the amazing collection of trees out there. Hope you can join us tomorrow at the Morton Arboretum here on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. when information continues to come at us faster and faster. Sometimes you need to hit pause. 
and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.